Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by co-founder and CEO of Source Football, Ravi Remanani. Ravi, a big warm welcome to the show. Connor, thanks for having me uh, on this podcast. How are you uh, doing? All good, all good. As, as you can see, if you're watching us on YouTube, you're decorated in a lovely Indian shirt there in the background. Yeah, I, you know, I have a lot of football shirts and as you can probably imagine, football obsessive. Um, and, you know, I think uh, I did not know this, but India did play a, a I think a, not a friendly, but one of those games where there's at the lower levels of the FIFA rankings, there's a lot of local tournaments. I think they played Iraq today and they, they lost in the penalties, I think, you know, so. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I love this shirt because this I bought probably like 10 years ago, I think, at this point. Um, yeah, I just kind of love it. One day I want to see India in the World Cup. So hopefully the rest of the stay goes better for you, Ravi. But um, as we begin with every guest on the show, I mean, we ask, could you please take us through your earliest football memory? Earliest football memory. I think I watched, without knowing what's going on, the 86 World Cup, a few matches um, back in India. And we didn't have a TV at that time in our house. I think I just walked into a neighbor's house where I played with their kids and I saw that the game was on TV. Didn't think much of it. Um, I did watch it for a little bit, but have obviously have no no real memory of that. Uh, the first real football memory I have, I think, is the 1990 World Cup, um, Italia 90 that I did watch some games and I was able to, I followed, obviously, India has a huge following for soccer, football, even though it's not very good at playing because cricket kind of sucks up all the all the energy and all the resources, which is changing though. I think football is picking up in India. But I watched, uh, I think a lot of the Argentina and Brazil are probably the most supported teams in India, in terms of national teams during the World Cup. And I was obviously read a little bit about Maradona and, you know, he did play the 90 World Cup. And so we're, I watched the opening game where they lost to Cameroon. Uh, the, I think, I think it, I don't know if it was the opening game or the second game, something. They were the defending champions. They played Cameroon first game. I think they lost and their goalkeeper got injured in that game. As those are the things I remember. And I watched the um, yeah watched that World Cup quite a bit. Um, did watch the final. Um, thought it was even at the time thought it was pretty ugly. Um, uh, but but I think as the years passed, I think you know 1990 World Cup kind of stands out as probably one of the most um, not for the most aesthetic reasons. Um, yeah, that's my first football memory. It's a very important one too for Irish football fans. Uh, the aesthetics we won't speak about in this podcast, but um, I mean, taking a look through your educational background before coming on the show, Ravi, I mean, was it always the case? Was it always the goal that you wanted to work in football? Because looking at the educational background, it's quite varied. You have a bachelor's degree in engineering, a master's degree in maths, and a computer science degree from the States too. No, it was... Uh... I think a lot of people 
you know, like if you think about it, like, you know, I, I didn't know about football. I didn't watch football or play football for a long time. Uh, and it was never my goal or at least not until a few years before I took the plunge into football was my goal to get into football. Because I think there are some people, I think they have some goals very early on and, you know, they can, they can progress towards those and, uh, and, and have that, you know, sometimes luck, sometimes a lot of hard work, they can actually achieve it. Something they thought about what they wanted to do when they're six year old or 10 year old. But I think for most people, um, I do, which I feel like I belong to more of the average um, person in that respect, that you find some experiences, you have some goals when you are at different stages of your life, and you try to achieve the next goal, which is maybe something that's in the next three, four, five years. And then as you go, you learn something new. And then you find something more interesting and you find something that you thought you were interested in, not as interesting. And so you just kind of move around. And so I think that's how my career is shaped. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to work. Um, like, first of all, I didn't want to do engineering or math to begin with, but, um, but back home in India, if you are good student, you were not given a choice to do like liberal arts or history or geography. I'm really good at geography and history and languages, um, but that's not what you're supposed to, that's not what parents wouldn't let you do it. So you have to go either into an engineering stream or a medical, because that's how they saw, my gen my parents' generation saw as kids getting, they wanted kids to get good jobs so that they have a better life than they had than what they had and how struggle, how much of a struggle it was for them. So they didn't want to put people, kids through a path where they didn't think there was an opportunity for them. So I think, I think so even there, like that was not what I really wanted to do. But I think once I got into it, I was like, oh, this is awesome. So I, I, you know, I took on and then I, um, yeah, so I did my mass, I did my engineering back in India and then came to States to do a master's in computer science. Right when I graduated, there was like, there was not, I think there it was not the dot-com. It was a few years after the dot-com bubble burst, uh, but still it was pretty bad. Like even five years, six years after the dot-com bubble, things were pretty bad. So I, I got out at that time. Um, and then, um, and and then I went to um, I went to Mexico for a little bit because you know I graduated in the U.S. There were not many jobs that were that I was looking for, and so I I actually went and worked in software in in Mexico. Um, that was a great experience. Um, and then I went back to India. Then I joined Microsoft in India, and then I transferred within Microsoft because there was there's a lot of movement within different arms of Microsoft. So so they moved me to the U.S. Microsoft. And um, then I think I, when I moved towards that phase is when I thought where my passion for real passion for football was forming. It's not just like watching a team or having a favorite team, watch them every week or follow them. It's more like, I want to do something to do with football, um, you know, and I did. So for the first idea I had was this was like back in 2009, 10, I think. Um, the first idea I had was um, writing blogs and 
doing podcasts. So I probably did like a 150 podcasts, like talking about Spanish football, interviewing all kinds of guests. I think I talked to Ray Hudson like three or four times. Um, and I, in those days, not, I mean, it's not that far, but he, he used to have a fixed line, fixed phone line. You have to call it and you have to pick it up and answer. Um, and I, you know, I talked to, so I thought that was the path to get into football, like writing, um, blogs and writing like kind of a journalism type of thing. Um, but, but I was doing it while I was working at Microsoft. It was fun. But then I realized that I'm neither a journalist, I don't have any background. I can write a story, but it's not the same as, you know, some of the best that write. And you know that it's a really hard business in terms of like, if you want to live off of it, it's very difficult for you to come from blocks and do all that. Um, so at the, right around that time, I also met my wife, Sarah. She was working at, at my, uh, she was working at Microsoft as well. We were, we were in the same group, um, Bing, Bing search engine, but Obviously, Bing had about 3,000 people at that time. So it's not like we were in the same, uh, you know, we it's a small group. Um, but both of us were very interested in uh, in football. Uh, I think she had her ideas more formed when I met her. And she was looking to do, uh, become like, do analytics. And I was like, okay, I our work at Microsoft involved heavily analyzing a lot of numbers. Uh, a lot of user behavior, um, how are users using search engine, what type of links they're clicking. So there's a lot of data analysis. So the techniques are what we were learning. We learned as a part of our job. So that made it very, I realized that, okay, that's those are skills that you need in any data analysis. Um, and so that was the first time I thought about, okay, maybe there is a path here that but there was no real path because you have to make your own path in the sense that at the time there were not many analysts. There is there is a not a lot of like structured way of doing things. It's not like I did a master's in computer science, so I know where to go apply for a job as a software engineer. There are thousands of jobs. So you apply for one of them and you interview and you get it. But here, you know how football clubs operate. Um, and, and even if there were any jobs within a football club, it's not that normal that they let or they post it and then they actually take a person from the outside. Uh, they would generally tend to go through connections, contacts and stuff. So, and this, and now we're talking about a new, completely new field. So we had a, we have to blaze our own path. So I think for me, like Sarah doing that um, was, was very, I think I kind of followed her path uh, in the sense because she was a few steps ahead of me. Um, and she quit Microsoft and then started working for this company that eventually got bought by Arsenal. Um, uh, so when she quit Microsoft, within three months, I quit as well uh, because uh, I figured I wasn't able to concentrate or do both things, like try to find a job in football means I had to demonstrate my skills using data in football and showing myself out there. Uh, you know, my job at Microsoft was pretty, pretty, pretty hectic, um, you know, very visible job, you know, with kind of higher level people. So I was working 60, 70 hours a week and I can't really do anything else uh, beyond that. So I, I decided to take, uh, basically I said, I give myself about, about a year um, without, um, and then 
And then this one year, I just kept talking to different data providers like Opta in those days and tried to get some free data from them and do analysis and put right blogs. And And my old blog, I think is still active, but it's just, if you look at it, you'll see some of the origi- uh, kind of formative ideas of very early stage, probably. I think now they all look pretty dumb, but it, in those days, it wasn't. It was, it was pretty pretty new at that time. So so yeah, I started doing that. And I think that's when Dave met, Dave and I met um, in one, and Dave used to run these sports science conferences um, at Seattle. And and I I met him at one of those uh, sports science conferences. Um, again, like he actually had invited Sarah to speak at uh, one of his events as a speaker. And there was like a social event. So I, you know, I tagged along and, you know, we went and then I met Dave. And then from the first moment I talked to Dave, it was, it was like, we basically uh, connected right away. And I met him a few more times. And that year, that was 2012. Um, I, I, um, I was actually, he would, he would tell me that, Hey, I got all these numbers from GPS and other stuff that we just bought. And so can you do some analysis for me? So we'd meet at a Starbucks um, on his off days and he would give me the data. And then the next week's off day would meet again and I'll show him some, some outputs, some analysis and some outputs. So we did this a little bit for like the last few months of the year of 2012. And at the end of that season, so MLS season starts in like February, March and ends in November, December. So at the end of that, he asked, he was using, I didn't know this, but he was using all this stuff I was providing him as a way to create a job position within the Sounders uh, for the next season. Um, So at the end of the season, he asked me if I wanted to join. Uh, And it was, it was purely on the sports science side to build like a data platform. So what you see as athlete management systems these days, um, he wanted me to build one such uh, for the Sounders at the time. So that's how I got into football. Absolutely astounding. Like uh, to be a fly on the wall for those conversations at Starbucks between yourself and Dave, who of course is a former guest of this podcast itself. But listening to you, especially over COVID and the Friends of Tracking event that you did with Devin Plurler of TFC at the time, I remember you speaking when you went in to Seattle as an analyst. For instance, you were working with huge sets, huge sets of GPS data, but you were also building data pipelines at the time. So, I mean, during those early days coming from the big world of Microsoft, I mean, moving into Seattle, what inefficiencies did you begin to detect that you sought to exploit? Yeah, first of all, I you know, when I joined, uh, there was no no like basically they didn't know what i needed to work um because it's a football club they didn't have a position like mine the first thing was like or do you want a desktop computer or what do you need you know i you know i had to start from there like okay i need to build a database server i need to build a internal website um you know so i need these i need that and so the it people were a little um were a little kind of taken aback. Well, like, well, they didn't expect some of the things I was asking them. So I think it started there. Um, and I think the big difference or big challenge for me was switching was at Microsoft, it was, I was one of hundreds or thousands doing the same similar stuff. I know we're in the same space, had similar backgrounds. Um, so if I had a question or if I had a problem, 
I could ask the guy in my office next to mine or my teammate. I hear I was only one, like I can only ask questions about football, but or fitness today, but not really like, hey, this is not working. Like this website is not, this link is not working or this this piece of code is not working. How do I fix it? So I had to adjust to that a little because I had to do it all myself. Um, I think the big inefficiency I found was that um, uh, clubs tended to have, tends, they tend to, so you buy GPS, you buy heart rate, um, you buy any other device like, you know, fitness, uh, and, and on the other side, you get stats bound data, you get impact or you get skill corner data. What happens is that, and this is again, like some of the context is 10 years old. So some of might have changed now, but I think largely still remains the same. All these softwares, they provide like a interface, all these data or data companies, they provide a small interface that you could use out of the box. And what ends up happening is that they do some things well, but they don't really answer all your questions uh, that you have. And if you want to do anything bespoke or you want you have a specific question that suits your context or that that is, for example, in, in MLS, Seattle especially, is probably the team that travels the most for games other than maybe Vancouver, um, you know, because of the geographic location. Um, and, and things like that. I mean, that does, and that is not at all a variable for a team in England. Right, uh, England. The longest travel is, uh, oh my God, we had a two-hour bus ride or three-hour train or something. Right? I mean, here we're talking about five, six-hour flight, and 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 going in commercial flights in those days. I think the charters just started in 2020 during COVID. Before that, you flew commercial. So, um, so yeah, so so for for those context-specific questions, it was there was like there was no way for them to answer those and a lot of the staff members as good and as knowledgeable as they are in terms of um, the football side and the fitness side, the concept side, they don't, they neither have the skills nor have the time to, to really, Oh, let me download all the raw data into a CSV and then write this piece of code in R or Python, or even in Excel, write a macro or write, do something to, to create this, you know, nice visualization or like, uh, or some longitudinal analysis. And so a lot of those things, and even if you did it, it just lives, even if some of the more advanced sports scientists, even if they did it, it just lived on their laptop. It didn't, it was just there. And when they left or, or something happened to the laptop, it's gone. Right. So, um, I think that was the biggest thing I noticed. And with athlete management systems that, that you could buy off the shelf, it improves some of the problem. It improves some of the, it provides some of the solution. In terms of, yes, it gives you a little bit more customization, create your own metrics, but then also it comes with about 30 to 40% of stuff that you don't need because they are solving the problem for a population, not for you. And it also doesn't solve the 30, 40% bespoke stuff that you need because you are just one of a hundred clients. So they can't really say, I'm going to do everything for every client wanted and put it into that software. It doesn't work that way. So so there was that kind of a gap also it needs to be filled. So I think what, you know, for the first few months I did this analysis and then presented that, I think the best option for us is to build our own and slowly add things as we want, want um, in that system. 
And so that was my first first six to eight months. I was actually the first three months I didn't have anything to show for coaches or or Dave. Um, it took me about three or four months to just put the infrastructure in place and then uh, put like a visualizations on top after that because I was the data engineer, I was the data scientist, I was the UX designer, all of that. So um, yeah, yeah, that's that was the biggest uh, need that clubs have. And I think even today, I think that some of that problem fundamentally is still there. It is not and. I think some clubs are better managing that. I think, you know, there's better systems and better. And also I think people like sports scientists and and clubs also have realized that they do need some some data people, like I think data engineers, data scientists. So there you can find these profiles in the clubs now more often. It won't be a surprise to see that a club in championship has two or three data scientists and one of them exclusively working on data on the sports science side others working on the recruitment side. So I think that's that's definitely changed in, in from when I entered to now. And I mean, your rise throughout the organization during your tenure, Ravi, was gigantic. I mean, you went from analyst to VP by the end of your time at Sounders. But reflecting back to those early days when you had to build and design and design everything yourself, were there perhaps any seminal moments where you reflect where you thought, yeah, that's where the leadership team at the Sounders really bought into my work? Um, it's, I think, uh, let me think about it. Um, I think when I first, I think well, there are two phases, or whether I can, you can do multiple phases, but two broad phases in my Sounders career. Um, at least the early four or five years. The first one was the first two years when I was exclusively focusing on sports science and um, fitness side, um, injury prevention, uh, you know, injury risk factors and all that stuff. Um, that was when I think the first time when I created a training report with which broke down the training load by, I'm sure Dave talked about how he wanted it. Like he has this internal load versus external load concept. And then the external load is broken down by the, what he calls the velocity load and the um, body load, which is, so velocity load comes from kind of the sprinting and the higher speed, longer sprints. And, uh, and, and it's basically all the activity that happens on the posterior muscle chain. And then the um, body load is the more short, you know, change of direction, stop, start, accelerations, decelerations. Um, and, uh, and so, so he wanted it divided by those into those three groups. And then also look at, uh, what is kind of a longitudinal view of this, like during a week, Monday plus, plus four, uh, or minus four plus two, minus three plus one, uh, minus three plus one, like, that, that's kind of what he wanted to see. Uh, like one, when I first showed them, I think that was like, that was the moment I felt also productive uh, because I was doing a lot of work, but I couldn't really show them anything. But when the first report went out and Dave liked it and then Dave showed it to the coaches. Um, and I think they, they were also like, have never seen anything like that before. So that was, that was one big moment. I think. Um, and, and then, and then after that was, like so what was happening was that the gps sessions at the time the catapult software was pretty much you 
it starts start a session, stop a session. So you have starts training starts 10, 11, 30, training ends. Um you had to go in and um break the periods down into like, okay, this is where they were doing activity, but there was no structure to the to that. So I mean there was no taxonomy to the drills we're doing or what are we doing in these drills. And and it, the software didn't give a way to make it easier. So also Dave asked me to uh, come up with, uh, hey, I want you to, I'm going to help you with some of the ideas on the taxonomy of the drills, but I want you to make sure that I need to know what is the load you get with a 6v6 small-sided game on a 40 by 40 grid for two minutes, right? So, so that's the kind of the specificity he wanted. So I had to design the, the, the kind of the nomenclature and taxonomy. And I, I don't have any football background, right? You know, uh, I don't, I don't know what, but I, I did it in a more, more of a structured engineer type way. Like, um, as an engineer, you learn, you should solve problems certain ways. So you, okay, this is the problem. So these are the different components. So I realized the numbers of the number of players, size of the pitch whether there were goalkeepers involved or not, um, whether there were neutrals um, in the game. Um, and a few other things I identified, these are the big things. And then there are the types of the games, you know, I, I learned from Dave, like small-sided, large-sided, tactical, walkthroughs. Um, and even within warm-up, we had the part where the warm-up was just without the ball, just maybe jogging and some kind of drills, agility stuff. And then there is the one where the ball was used heavily. So we were separating all of that out. So I created this language, not really language, but it's like a taxonomy of drills and different things of how we coded each of those. And then I, and I made sure that 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 if it was a drill was for two minutes, 20 seconds, it was captured, two minutes, 20 seconds. Um, and then um, and then like what is to happen is that, so th that took a while to to put that into play, probably a few months. But then we were having a lot of injury uh we, we had some we had some injury basically we had a guy that is supposed to start and and then the day before the game he came up and said like he has like a you know groin issue or something and then in coach got upset it's like what is happening here and one of the things that they've always told uh our coaches was hey some of these guys are just doing a lot of stuff after training ends and you know i'm okay if they they do it for a few minutes shooting or like free kicks but I don't want them to do for 15, 20 minutes every day. Uh, the coaches kind of bristled and they were, no, nah, I don't think Dave, that's a problem uh, at all. And and then Dave was like, hey, can you, because you've been doing this, can you break these things down where you can tell me how much time they're spending and how much load they're getting in terms of just doing stuff on their own? Because of I built this, I used to always have a period at the end or a slice called the own time where it's basically, I don't really say, I just say own time for every player. And then when we, when he asked me to bring, okay, I showed the analysis and said, this player was doing almost 20% extra load than the days on the, what was prescribed for the day, just doing shooting at the end. And, and that was like a big moment for the coaches and stuff like, okay, now we see it. And so then from then on, the coach started telling players very strictly that, you can't do, you can do for five minutes, but you can't do it. And you can't do three days in a row. So, so I thought that was a big moment where things that 
we put to, put in place were able to answer a question that that was like people were just fighting with opinions like you know Dave thought they were doing too much because he had an inkling of what the load is uh coaches thought that you know they didn't think that was a big deal uh so that was a big moment um i can think of fascinating and i mean you speak of there there was probably two stages to your settled sounders career one being involved in the sports science department and then on the other side too i mean working alongside people and talent id recruitment obviously the good stuff regarding salary caps and player development i mean Ravi, gaining exposure to working with so many different heads of departments, how did that help you in understanding the context around the bigger picture? I think that I would give a huge credit to the Sounders organization, everybody there, and also obviously Dave and, and the coaches, you know, Brian Smetzer, who's the head coach now, was the assistant coach when I joined. Um, all of them, uh, the owner, Adrian Hanover, he was the GM before the the GM that I worked with most, Garth Lagerway, came on, um, and then, and then he changed my role completely. Um, but but all of them always were open with me. When 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 I entered the building, I obviously my only experience with football was watching as a fan and and probably writing a few analytical pieces, trying to understand the game, break down the game using numbers. But that was I had to. I had a steep learning curve in terms of how the professionals saw the game, how the coaches saw the game. And so I, I learned a lot and they were always open with that. I think I would say one of one of my best, um, I think I was, I was lucky to be in that group um, in many ways to get that opportunity. I don't think that is normal within football clubs. I am sure there are a few that where you can get similar experiences, but I think a lot of the clubs, I think it's a lot more, closed and um, not as uh, open culture. Um, I, th I think that helped me a lot. Um, and I think that's that's what I, I and I give credit for. Um, and I was always like, you know, once I realized that this is what I, this I felt like, okay, this is something I want to do for a while. Um, I was trying to learn as much as I can, um, not just, not just tactics and stuff, but also like, how does the equipment guys run their run their part? Pretty important, right? Like, you know, it's one of the things most, probably the most thankless job and the guys that work the hardest in the building um, and get yelled at for super small things like, oh, this tape is not yellow color or this tape is different color. Like, you know, they get they get so much abuse for things like that. And so I, I, I always um, tried to, I mean, I always respected all of them and learned a lot from all of those guys. So, so it's like, yeah, I I spent time with the medical people, um, and um, yeah, everybody everybody on the sporting side. So I was given the opportunity, and I took the opportunity to to learn a lot about different parts of it. Now, coming back to the other part of the work that I did after a couple of years, um, Goth Lagerway came in, um, I think at the start of 2015, end of 2014. Um, he saw what I was doing, uh, what we were doing on sports science. And then one day he called me in and said, and I was spending a lot of time on the field because I was doing the drills. Like, um, so I needed to be there to make sure the, the drills are captured correctly and all that. So, um, so he called me one day and said, Hey, I think, um, I want you, I think you've done great with the sports science stuff. I want you to now 
build me a recruitment platform, just like you built for sports science. What do I need to do? What do we need to do to build a recruitment platform? Um, and I, and you can get an intern to do the, to do the stuff on the field. I don't want you to waste time on the field. Um, so, um, I also learned a lot being on the field. I think, I think you'll know that I think in football, if you are on the field with the coaches and, you know, staff, you almost get an instant credibility, like, because you're part of them, like you're part of the huddle. You've like, there is a lot of that, you know, and I, that all came very helpful for me because I think that gave me, it made me a lot, it made it a lot easier for me to push back or say something to later on in my career to push back or say something to the coaches. And, you know, because I built the rapo to say, Hey, I don't think this is this type of uh, what we're doing in corners is right. I think we should try this other thing that I can show you from my analysis that this is better uh, or, or talking about players or performances or things like that. So that gave me a lot of the stuff. So God came to me and said, like, you, I want you to work on the, on the other side. And so then I went, went on the other side and, and I was actually doing something on the side because that's something that I wanted to, uh, even before God asked me to switch to the other side. Um, but I was already building something, uh, but I didn't show it to anyone. But but once he asked me, it accelerated. And then we got, I got some budget to buy some data. And then eventually I got another person um, um, to, to add, to, to do some of the data engineering stuff that I was doing alone until then. Um, and then, um, yeah. Uh, so along the way, people, there, there was some movement in the organization. And so, um, there was a point, I think, uh, in 16 or 17, when, uh, 16, maybe, uh, I was asked if there was like, a. Uh, he asked me, Hey, do you want to, do you want to do the salary cap? I was like, yeah, for sure. Um, and for me, it was very simple math. Sa salary cap in MLS has a lot of, a lot of kind of rules that are strange, but, but in the end, it's very small numbers and I could just do the math in my head. Like it's pretty simple. Um, so at least because of my background, um, so, so like I started doing that and that gave me a lot more, uh, insight into how to build a team, not just like, like, I think I would say like how my, my view has changed in those last, in those few years was like, it went from, I like this player. I love this player to, I love this player at this price. I love I like this player at this price. I don't like this player anymore at this price, you know? So there is there is that kind of subtle difference in understanding the value, value for the team, um, you know, where where you need to get. So, and how you can, and it's all about like how to, and I learned a lot from God. God is very good at that. And I think I, I picked up a lot from him where, how to build a team and where to take, if you, where to put your most of your money in, and then where, 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 what are the positions you should try to get some savings out of and how to structure contracts and, you know, things like that. So, And obviously too, Ravi, I mean, working with and collaborating with so many people across so many different departments, it gives great context to what happens on the field. And as you spoke about it there before, before you even offered a job regarding salary cap and performance analysis, you were, you were already working on those special projects on the side. Um, a lot of a lot of people listening to this podcast, Ravi, they tune into from coaching circles. So I suppose what your own background, would you have evidence and worked 
much before on quantifying game models, perhaps? That's something we're doing as a part of our company's work now. Like, you know, the clubs that we work with, um, they asked for uh, game model quantification. Uh, I think it's a, it's it's something that is a is not not an easy task because just understanding the game model and then I think the the steps are pretty straightforward in the sense that take the game model understand what the different phases of play are according to the game model so for example we 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 have like as a we one of the first things we built one of the first models we built uh, as a company is a what we call a phase of play model because i think one of the problems with football and data or event data especially is that everything is the the events are captured discreetly oh he had a pass here passed from a to b from player x to player y then he had a tackle and there was a dribble and then there was a shot and you calculate the xg for the shot and then there was you know things like that right but and then you talk about oh he did it from this part of the pitch middle third, first third, final third, um, defensive half. But but the game itself is a lot more connected and fluid than that. It's uh, You're trying to describe a game that's flowing continuously uh, by using discrete events. Um, and it's always going to be uh, very hard. Or there's a lot of chance for misrepresenting things. So instead of like... and And then... So what we did is we what we would build is a how do the coaches coach the game? They they break the game down into phases. I think you you can you can you can tell me if I'm wrong. You break it down into different phases. Now everyone's phase definitions are slightly different, um, uh, but then I think you know fundamentally you have like you know let's say you have the build up phase, um, and then you have like kind of elaboration. Some people call it elaboration. Some people call it progression phase, which is kind of where you pass the first line of pressure and then you try to now create overloads or in, uh, imbalances so that you can then go break another line and get, get into the final final attack, attacking movements. So you have that middle phase, whatever the name you call it, and then you have like a attacking phase or a finalization phase or a, you know, a third phase like that. And and these are all controlled, what we call like controlled phases, meaning you, one of the teams has established control of the ball. Then there is the phase where nobody's in control of the ball, where it's just like sometimes you see in games like head tennis, balls bouncing one side to another. Nobody's in control of the ball, but it's like, or you can call it like a second ball phase where you're trying to win the second ball um, or trying to basically win the loose ball and get the game into a controlled phase or controlled state. Then there is the transition phase, attack to defense, defense to attack, where you want to quickly progress and attack or try to prevent a team from progressing. Then there is the obviously the set piece phase, which is in its own kind of a separate thing. So, so you have so the way we built our model is like we have a few of these controlled phases where you're progressing the ball in a controlled fashion from uh, from back to front. Then there is the transition phase, and there is the 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 contested phase, or what we call it, like I guess you can call it like ping pong phase, where nobody's in control of the ball. Um, so I think the game is more understood better that way. 
and and instead of saying like hey a player this player he he has 80% pass completion rate in the attacking half that really doesn't answer the question if the question is if the coach want i want somebody to like a connector for me from midfield to the i have a great number 10 i have a good defense but i want somebody to connect the ball from here to there and so so that's more understood as so for us in our language we would say um oh so what they want is somebody to connect from phase 2 to phase 3 basically someone that can break the second line get the ball in front to either to the wide guys runners or to a 10 and he can as a wall pass and then pass to a um pass to a runner um you know different things like that um so so like i think we you know our model can do a better job of identifying these players because sometimes the attacking phase starts not attacking phase doesn't always start in the final third sometimes it can start even before if it's a high pressing team if you pass the the last line of pressure around the midfield that's already attacking phase it it doesn't matter where it started so i think so so we try to look at it that way now why i'm explaining about all this is that this is what i think ties closer to a game model uh and and then we can define we can we can tweak the definition of the phases based on the game model of the specific coach and we could say oh the coach might say no in my phase in my model these are the triggers and when this happens i think that is when i my model according to my model i will activate my final third movements or final movements so we can take that input and build a bespoke model to do that and then we can do that we can run that the beauty of the analytics is that it's like we do this once with sitting with the coach once once meaning like maybe it'll take a few weeks of discussions we'll do this once we are agree on the model we can run it on a 100,000 matches and can take any player and say what does how does he look what is his p2 to p3 efficiency look like phase 2 to phase 3 uh, or what does his build up efficiency look like and and you know and so on and so forth so we so we can then now we're getting to a framework where we can start to measure the efficiency in different phases um and and then you know that in ef- that in effect measures has the game model been working now, the question is, is the game model working um, or are the players implementing the game model right? So you have to answer those questions. So, um, yeah, we can we can start to answer those questions based off of uh, something that a, a model or like a setup that reflects more of what they're doing um, and uh, coaching them uh, week in, week out. Very intriguing. And... You know, what I'm even more intrigued to hear more about is that coach-analyst relationship, which I'm thinking of in my own context too, because here you're speaking about qualities and then you're reverse engineering the metrics and you're coming up with a sort of a player profile, if I'm not mistaken, in terms of that can garner those qualities and metrics. So for me, that whole kind of process is cyclical in terms of using yeah. metrics that you guys come out with as a conversation and as a springboard to better enhance player pre- player metrics and to better enhance and the player development model within the club. No, I mean, I think we can also, like, 
Um, we've had questions where, what do you suggest or what do you think is the best way to play? And that's another question that we want to answer for front offices, clubs, ownership groups, that if this is the squad we have and these are all these players that we have under contract for the next couple of seasons, what is the best way to use them? I think that's another that's another underrated thing. It's like a lot of times, I I do think that coaches are even like football club. Very few football clubs come with a blank slate. So meaning that there's like the expansion, new teams in MLS like San Diego will come into MLS in the year, not next year, but the year after. Uh, then they'll have like there's no players right now, no coach right now, so they can they have a clean slate. But you. But there are not many clubs like that. And even if you have a club, it's only once you have that one opportunity. But most of the time, what you're dealing with is a context that's already there, meaning there is eight of the, like, there are 20 players under contract for next season. So there is need to be like an adapt, a phase of adaptation of some of these players could be like a new coach comes in. Some of these players can be made into play the, the exact system that the coach wants to play. But I'm pretty sure that not all of them will fit into it. Um, and so and so then you're left with, and then you probably also not have enough resources or flexibility to bring enough players so that you can just play with the players and the system that you wanted to play. So there is a level of adaptation needed to use the existing players that, that you have to use until you get to a phase or a place where you have all 14 or 11 or 17, whatever the the, the size of the uh, kind of the critical squad um, as all the players that you want um, profile-wise. So I think there, I think we can help with, or we can answer questions like, okay, what's, what's the best way to use these players? Like our best way, best place to deploy a certain player. Um, and I think that's something that we, a lot of work is going on from our side in terms of research. Um, um, on similar lines, the other things also for balance squads, squad balance. Um, it's a lot more about okay, what does a given the context of a league, because each league has its own context in terms of the type of football is played there. Uh, as as an average, obviously there will be extreme outliers and 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 a few teams that do some things differently. But in general, what works like a Spanish second division or a or like a Premier League, um, MLS, um, and then try to understand what is a balanced squad look like that can compete and win in that league. Uh, what are the skills? What are the different attributes, player attributes needed? Not not individual players, but do we have the ability to dribble past like a low block? Do we have the ability to run behind a high line? Um, it could come from multiple players. It need not be just, oh, my winger needs to do all this. It could be a different player on the field that could do it. Um, so, so there's there's different ways to um, address that question, and and I think we um, we those are the kind of discussions that we have uh, on a day to day basis. And I mean, what's one thing you're researching now, Ravi? It could be player analysis. It could be with respect to the training model, and then hereby influencing methodology and session design for future. But what's one thing that you're researching now? That's not being spoken about enough. That will be become quite commonplace. You think in the coming decade or so? Uh, that's a good question. Um, because um, it's 
I do think like I think I think what I mentioned just now about like a looking at the squad as a as a conglomeration of skills needed to succeed in a football game or a football pitch. Um and you know, as you can see, like the, the game is going towards where it's getting a little bit positionless to a degree. Not 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 quite that everybody can anybody can do anything, but it is a little more fluid. It's hard to de- designate a player. This guy's a six. That guy's an eight. This guy's ten. Like you know, it doesn't lend itself anymore that way because all the players are asked to do multiple things now, um, and they need to be good at multiple things. So, so yeah. So I think that that concept means that that's kind of where if football is going that direction, um, I think then it's then identifying what are the what is missing in the squad, what are the different qualities needed to build like a balanced squad, and depth of depth as well. I think that may be, um, in, in, you know, like in a squad building perspective, that I feel like that's not. It talked about. I mean, it is definitely people think about it. People talk about it, but I don't think there's been a way to measure it or to put. Um, yeah, just just do it in a more more scientific way. Um, I think you know, just you you all look at like everybody draws up depth charts and says, "Are we too deep in every position?" And you know, that kind of gets you somewhere, but I don't think that's probably very scientific or, you know, to a point where um, it is very, um, that can be very predictive or something that you can repeat. Um, But in terms of just research um, that we're doing, I think there is a lot, like the data sets, I think this is one which will be very different in 10 years is that you're going to have much better data sets. Um, Like right now, we have event data, we have broadcast tracking data, we have tracking data. And I think there is now newer tracking data sets that are much bigger, but they also have body pose estimation type things. Um, so so that will start getting more and more mainstream, becoming start becoming more affordable. Then I think you can answer more questions that, that have been, that you haven't been able to answer. Um, like let's say, even with today's tracking data, which is just a dot on the field, you just know, you don't know whether the player is facing the goal or with his back to the goal. So some of those type of body orientation pieces are pretty important for, um, like, you know, how good a player is in tight spaces or how good a player is to turn and, and you know, receive the ball um, or receive the ball in turn. Um, so I think those you will be able to answer this. So I think that's where the analytics world is going. Um, I think we can be able to answer. We'll be able to answer more questions. Uh, and I think the the biggest piece I think is that we'll probably get to maybe answering more about decision making. Like I think that's one. Like we 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 can measure how players are executing plays today. Uh, well, pretty well, but. Uh, we don't know why he made that decision um, uh, or has he seen the other options he has if he's trying to pass the ball has he seen all the two or three options and did he pick the right option I think that that's probably the one that I think will be a very big uh, 
very big leap, um, which probably will will take some time. It was not gonna it's not gonna happen. Probably if you're if you're talking about a 10 year horizon, I think you'll see that. I think you'll see more more and more towards that direction. Interesting, but it's certainly representative of the fact. I mean, you've been part of the data revolution in football reviewed over the past decade or so and back in the day it used to be kind of access and speed respect to data and respect information now it seems to be all about decision making and judgment and having the right people in the room to cross collaborate as such which i think is very interesting going forward in terms of how we make sense of that yeah yeah i think i think so i think uh it's also like if you look at not to, I don't like to compare with uh, American sports, um, but there are some things I think that would that that are instructive of how the change has been. If you look at baseball, like almost all baseball GMs now, there is hardly anyone that's like a traditional former player becoming a baseball GM background. There may be one or two, but that's it's mostly executives, uh, MBAs. Um, and people that are, you know, it's, it's solving a problem of optimization It's solving a problem of maximizing resources, solving. So I think that's where, like, if you look at baseball, that's how, and obviously that's not the case 20 years ago, but I think that is the case now. Nowadays, I think almost every team, the lineup is, it's almost, I'm not saying auto-generated, but I think it's, it's picked up by, based on analytics most of the lineups in baseball. So I think if you look at football, obviously a different sport, you know, there's nothing to compare one to another. But the point you just made about who is in the room, who are collaborating, that composition is definitely changing. Um and and I think that's probably one place where I think if it will as we are able to um using better data and better analytics um, quantify more things and get make thing more things more um, yeah more yeah more quantify more things. I think then it lends itself to there is another set of people or another set of eyes that can that are probably experts in using different types of insights and uh, solve problems in a different way. I think those people will start entering the room, and I think that's that to me is like. Um, and always, you always want a diverse team to solve problems because there is, there's a lot of strength in having a diverse team with different sets of expertises solving a problem. It's, it, it's like you don't want, yeah, you don't want too much homogeneity in terms of how you want to solve problems. I think, you know, this, this has been proven across all other fields. Like, you know, if you look at software, there's hardly any software team in any software company that is not diverse in terms of backgrounds, um, culture, color, skin, um, race, sexuality. I mean, like all of them, like, it's just like everybody looks at it differently and you need all those insights to solve these problems. Fantastic. Uh, Ravi, I have to say it's been certainly enlightening finally having you on the podcast speaking about your own journey today. It's speaking about the evolution of data analytics and the great work you guys are doing at Source Football, um, that of which I'll link in the show notes below. But, I mean, as is closing tradition on every podcast, I ask the guest about their own journey in the game to date. 
And, you know, for anyone who's listening, that's that slightly bit inspired or compelled to take the jump into data analytics, to throw out a similar path to which you've been on, Ravi, what would be the one bit of key advice that you'd have for them? Um, for a long time, I used to say, uh, I, I got this question a lot, or a version of this question. A long time I used to say that people uh, should get into it and do something and create a portfolio and, and uh, just put themselves out there that show what they can do. Uh, I think that even today, I think it was more relevant. Uh, I mean, it's still relevant. I think uh, that a lot of football clubs still look at the public sphere to see where the, to hire or what to do. Like, you know, what, how do they? So you, you need to put yourself out there. Um, to a degree, and I think just doing it. Um, and these are the this is the kind of advice uh, we got when we started back in the day, and and I think that still stands today. That um, it's and also like the other piece of advice I give in addition to that is, it's if you are like um, focused on getting the skills that are needed may not be working in football right away. Like, like I, I don't want to jump into this thing uh, right out of college and say, I, I need to get a job in football or I need to get a job in sports. I think sometimes it could be difficult because there's a lot of people that are trying to get or trying to do this. And if there is somebody that is roughly similar to you but has two years of experience or three years experience, probably will go for, for that person. Um, so what I tell people is that just take a job that core the skills that you're going to use or learn in that job are going to be helpful for you in football. Like data analytics, let's talk about analytics. If you get a job in analytics, even analyzing, uh, you know, like some clinical lab tests of some new drugs or, you know, whatever, something like that. Um, you know, there is a lot of data jobs today, data analysis, data scientist job. All the techniques that you use in terms of how do you uh, manipulate data, how do you clean data, how do you analyze data using different techniques, logistic regression or deep learning from one to another. I, I went from one extreme to another extreme type thing. But but like all those things you tend to use in all data analysis. And so if you while you keep your focus on the, on the sports uh, goal of going there in the long term, um, if you can keep gaining those skills and getting the experiences, I think it'll be a lot easier for you to to make the switch. And you can, um, and also like, you'll probably also find a better situation as you um, as you 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 learn a lot um, uh, picking up these skills. So I I say that put yourself out there, but also don't wait for too long. Just keep doing something. To keep doing something that takes you in that direction. Absolutely fantastic. Ravi, it's been a pleasure hosting you today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.